All right, good morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I, just as a quick reminder for those of you who may not have the Right Now Media account set up for yourselves, so I've looked at the contacts and who's actually accepted the invitation for the gift that we want to give you. And now we're going through the book of James, and that actual study is on Right Now Media. So if you don't actually have your Right Now Media account activated, then you can't actually access the study or watch the videos. You're only like seven to eight minute videos. And I would encourage you to do that. Now, there's 40 email addresses. No, no, that's too many. 30. It was 30 email addresses that haven't actually accepted the invitation that was given. Um, now, you may need to check your spam email. You may need to check your junk email. Or you might have accidentally deleted it. If you don't have that email, can you please let me know? Then I can resend the invitation to you. Um, and once you actually receive the invitation, then you can get underway under, uh, with the studies and watch the videos and be caught up to date. Because what I do like about the book of James is that it is very, very practical. It is very practical. Now, you have to understand that as we go through this book, that the action that James talks about, about how we conduct ourselves as Christians is because it's addressing us as Christians. It's working on what the Bible calls our sanctification, how we live from day-to-day life, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to achieve the goals and the purpose for which God has intended. So this book is written to Christians. It's for Christians. It's got nothing to do with you earning your salvation or anything like that. I need you to have that in mind. You see, we looked at last week a summary of the first, I believe, 18 verses, looking at the deception that we encounter because of the circumstances that we face and the trouble we can get into and, and we can sort of miss or misunderstand the things that are taking place in our lives because our relationship with God has been impaired. It might have been impaired by the persecution that we face It might have been impaired by the inadequacies that we experience. It might be impaired by our own personal trials and temptations. But the focus of it is our relationship. The only way we can live the way we do as Christians is through the power of God. That's the only way. And I don't want you to lose that focus. I don't want the book of James to be like, a, a subject to study at school. I don't, I don't want it to be like, even with PTC, I don't want it to be information to be gathered, rather it's to be information to transform. That's what we want to sort of achieve as we look at this particular book. And we're going to carry on through, the, through this book of James, looking at the second part of it, which is James chapter 1, verses 19 through to 27. So I'm going to read that for you now. Can I have the uh, slides up, please, Cass? Thank you very much. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to open in prayer straight up. So if you've got your Bibles on your app, on your page, Bible, your old school, um, turn to James chapter 1. We're going to start reading from verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the things that you've been teaching us throughout this past week. And as we delve into your word now, we ask that by your spirit, you will speak to us. By your spirit, you will challenge us and convict us. By your spirit, you will transform us and change us to be more like your son, Jesus. Please speak to us now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this particular text, I think, is really quite neat in the sense that, once again, it stems from our relationship with who God is. He is the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning, as the King James puts it. We sang, even this morning, great is thy faithfulness. There's no changing in him whatsoever. How he was back then, he is even today. And what I wanted to do is, as we look at our relationship we have with God through this particular passage, whilst last week we looked at what I call the testing of one's faith, This week, I'm looking at what's called the observance of one's faith. What I mean by observance is that the word observance means the act or instance of following, obeying, or conforming to. So when I say the observance of faith, what I mean is the act of following in our relationship, the act of conforming to our relationship, the act of obeying in that relationship that we have with Jesus. And it starts off with something very, very practical. If you look at verse 19, in verse 19, it starts off with two words, know this, know this. What I like about that know this is that it implies an expectation. The two words communicate an expectation to one's conduct, just as an individual is to know, say, basic theological truths, like, by grace you have been saved through faith, like, salvation is through Christ and through Him alone, like, your names have been written in the book of life, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those basic truths you know as Christians. And so the way James starts this verse is, know this, this is a basic thing you should know. And then he gets into a real practical advice. It is so practical that I have heard this promoted by, say, psychologists in relationship studies. I have seen this promoted in different ideologies and different worldviews as well. And it is something very basic that you and I need to understand in how we conduct ourselves relationally with others. Know this. Let every person be quick to hear. Be quick to hear to hear. We, we live in a society that is becoming increasingly more reactionary. We live in a society where everything is a knee-jerk reaction, isn't it? Some, and I am guilty of this. I am so guilty of this. I have told my children off because I have reacted to a circumstance without getting the information and making a wrong decision. I have done this. You may have done this at work 
where somebody has said something and you straight away, bam, you've got something to say. You have a discussion with your spouse, which is like the really good test of how well you really listen. That when you have a discussion with your spouse and she says something or he says something and then all of a sudden you're like, bam, without getting the full context. And what does it have? I know I've done this and I have made things exponentially worse when I have reacted to a situation with my wife and then have to clean up the mess afterwards. Well, try to clean up the mess afterwards. But we are to be quick to hear. And that is the mentality of today's society. See, we are called not to be of this world, and yet this world reacts. Reacts to when anybody says anything about anything, and they jump on you for it. You've experienced this. I've experienced this. You say you're a Christian. You say you're a Christian in some context, and people jump on you straight away. You have a conversation with someone, and you say, I follow Jesus, or I go to church, and then straight away, ah, you must hate certain people. You must hate certain lifestyles. Oh, you're, you're intolerant. Why? Because that's the way the world works. But we are told as Christians, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that we are to be quick to hear. And what that does is provide a context when if we are quick to hear, that if we are wanting to listen, it implies a thoughtful holding back. It means being governed not by the reaction or by your emotion, but by the wisdom of God's Word and by the power of His Spirit. That's what happens. Proverbs 13.3 says this, Those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin. Those who guard their lips, sometimes it is much better to listen, hear everything that's being said before you respond. That, that is really wise. For if we are told in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, that if from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, when you speak in a reaction to something, what does that reveal about your heart? What does it reveal about your heart? Whether it be gossip, whether it be insults, whether it be inflammatory lines to defame somebody, what does that reveal about your heart? The things that your heart is full of is what comes out. That's what we're told. So we are first told that we are slow to speak. The second part we are told is to be, sorry, swift, sorry, quick to speak. We are called to be slow to anger. Why is being slow to anger so important? We're told in the second part of the verse, the second part of the, sorry, in verse 20, it says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Or, in basic terms, our anger doesn't bring about that which is right in God's eyes. I remember years ago, we did a series with Rick Warren, and Rick Warren made this comment, which I've always remembered. He says, when you are angry, you lose 50% of your ability to think rationally. Well, that's, that's scary, because I'm not smart to begin with. And as you lose 50% of that, that's dangerous. But we are so... And you see this, if you look at, look at numbers, and I've used this example before, but I really like this example. When you've got Balaam and he's riding his donkey, he's riding his donkey to go curse Israel. And there's an angel that appears on this bridge and the, angel, the, the, the donkey goes around and crunches his leg. He gets angry. He, he sits there, he beats it. You know. Eventually the donkey just sits down 
And so what does Balaam do? He gets out and he starts, he starts smacking this donkey, starts smacking it because he's really, really angry. And when the donkey, when the donkey starts speaking to him, you notice he doesn't freak out that a donkey is speaking to him. So when the donkey sits here and asks him, why are you beating me? He isn't like, ah, the donkey's talking. He's like, because you're not doing what I want you to do. He starts having a conversation with the donkey, not thinking it's strange at all. If my dog, if my, I've got rabbits. If my rabbit started speaking to me, that would freak me out. If the, if the rabbit wasn't doing what I was doing, but straight away, that's what happens. You lose the ability to think. That's why we are called to be slow, oh, it's slow to speak, not slow to anger. Anyway, I, got, I jumped over, jumped ahead of one. Being slow to anger, that's what happens. It doesn't work the righteousness of God. I jumped the slow to speak one because I like the slow to speak one anyway. Jump back, sorry. Being, being slow to speak. So slow to anger, you lose your ability to think rationally. And I'll come back to that in a minute. When it says being slow to speak, slow to speak enables you to align with this proverb. You preserve your testimony, you preserve your integrity, you preserve your right to be heard. That's what happens when you're slow to speak. More often than not, a speedy word that is said can be a knee-jerk reaction that can have more harm and exacerbate, that's my new word, exacerbate the situation, can make it worse. That's why it says in Proverbs 18, 13, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Now, then we go to slow to anger. I'm sorry I skipped that one there. And we are told when it comes to be slow to anger, anger doesn't bring about God's righteousness because God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Meaning that there is never any ulterior motive in the purposes and the words and the ways that God is working. That's what happens with the righteousness of God. Now, when we're slow to anger, we see God and His working when He is angry, that it is done in a way that is pure. And that's what I got in Nehemiah 9:17b, that you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not forsake them. Human anger jumps to conclusions. Human anger causes to many uh, inconsistent judgments. Human anger has too much human in it. Thus, the call to us as Christians is to, verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. When it says it's able to save your souls, it's not in the sense of salvation because you're already saved, but in terms of your own personal sanctification and in terms of your own personal holiness. Colossians chapter 3.16 says what? It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. An admonishment is a correction done with love. When you have the implanted word within your heart, there's a there's a setting apart of your desires. There's a setting apart of where you want to go and, and of what you want to do, not only in relationships, but in terms of your purpose. That's what happens when the, the implanted Word of God takes root in your souls. Because a person who knows Jesus and has the Spirit of God actively working through the Word of God in your life, you'll find this observance, that there is self-control over emotional reaction. Self-control over emotional reaction. Why is this self-control? Because self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. 
the fruit of the Spirit that dwells in you. That self-control, uh, the old King James refers to it as being temperate, as being temperate, having a temperate heart. This is what our observance of faith should look like. Now, I'm not saying emotions are bad. I'm not saying emotions are wrong. Emotions are wonderful things. Emotions are a gift from God. That you can't, you can't deny emotion. To walk around and be an emotionless male, to walk around and say, I'm a man. No, no, that doesn't work. What it means is this. It means that you have a heart that beats in time with God's heart. God grieves, especially when he sees a heart that is distant from him, or when he sees his children rejecting him, or sees children choosing, choosing to find contentment in things outside of him. His heart grieves. His heart it gets angry. His heart gets jealous. His heart loves. His heart has compassion. His heart has, has mercy. And if we are created in the image of God, therefore we experience those same things. So emotions aren't a bad thing, but because we are tainted with sins, we have emotional reactions to things. Have you ever noticed this when you see kids? When you see little children, I've seen this upstairs, little children playing, and they're playing, they're having fun, and then eventually somebody wants something, and there's an emotional reaction. One child cries, the other child cries, one child does this. There's an emotional reaction. They want, they want what they want. That's mine now. That's how it works. That's, that's the sinfulness of our heart. But we are called to be, by the Spirit, self-controlled. Self-control over emotional reaction. And you see this, you see this manifest in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, we read this, that though he was reviled, he reviled not again. So when he was, when he was unjustly arrested, when he was beaten and slapped on the face, when he experienced a mockery of a trial, he did not react emotionally. Did he? The self-control the Lord Jesus experienced. And, and you think about it, in John chapter 18, verse 36, we read when he says to Pilate, if I was of this world, my armies would fight for me. He had the heavenly host all there waiting as soon as it, Jesus at any time could have wiped anybody out whenever he felt like it. He could have sat there and said, you're going to slap me? You're gone. When he was being nailed to a cross, he could have just commanded everything, the heavenly host to wipe everybody out. He could, have, he could have done that at any time. But while he was reviled, he reviled not again. The self-control, why? Because he saw the greater purpose in what he was doing. And so in Luke 23, 34, what do you read? That whilst he was being nailed to a cross, whilst they nailed him to that cross, taking upon himself your sin and my sin, while he was there and people were mocking him, people were abusing him, what were some of the lines? You know, ye saved others, let him save himself. You say you are the son of God, come down from that cross. These people are mocking him. What does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That's what he prayed. This is self-control over an emotional reaction. And you know why he was able to exercise such self-control? Yes, he was Jesus in the flesh. He was still man. Why? Because he saw the greater picture of what he was accomplishing for the glory of God. You know what that picture was? To provide for you and I a means by where we can have our sin forgiven. A means by where you and I could be accepted by him because of what he'd done for us on the cross. That's what he saw. He saw the opportunity to have Michael Guth, the Guth, 
the goose. He saw the goose and says, I want him to be my son and I want to do this for him. He saw Ed and says, I want that man to be my son and I'm going to do this for him. He saw Victoria. He saw Viv. He saw Carl. He saw us. And he said, I will stay here so that you might come to be my child. That's why he stayed. That is the self-control shown by our God for you and for I. That's what it was all about. And, and this is why when you see the observance of faith as the self-control of emotional reaction, the example has got, we need to be able to see the bigger picture in our lives just as Jesus saw his. We need to be able to look at the purpose of the relationship I have with a person at work who does not like me, who thinks I'm irritating, that I can pray for. You know why that person's there? So that you can show the love of Jesus to them, pray for them, and then they might come to know Jesus. And even if they don't, they might see the example of Jesus in your conduct instead of, instead of reacting emotionally. You might have a, a family member that doesn't know Jesus who mocks you every single time. And instead of reacting emotionally, you, they can see the conduct of godliness that shines forth from you. Why? Because you are swift to hear, you are slow to speak, and you're slow to anger. That's why. Because that's the example our Lord set for us. And you know what's great? Not only did he set the example for us, by his Spirit, we have the ability to live that reality out in front of those people. That's practical. That's real life. And that's the opportunity that you and I have every single day to live out between your family members, to live out between your neighbors, people down the road, and your workmates or classmates. And that's really cool. And that's really exciting. But that's just the start. Why? Because if this is the first observance of faith, the second one says this. It starts off with, I think, a pretty self-explanatory reality. To be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. One of the biggest consequences of speaking swiftly in reaction to something is because more often than not, we don't actually measure up to the very thing we've said. This is one of the worst things that we have, especially when you, when you speak swiftly, when you react emotionally, you say things that are just harsh. Or you might set a standard, for example, I remember when I was a young father, a young father, my, my wife said to me, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna say something to the kids, make it like realistic. Don't, you know, like they're not allowed to watch TV for the day. Not the year. That's not realistic. You know, you, you gotta see, be, a, be a bit more wise. And so I was like, oh, well, okay, all, all right then, all right, okay, fair enough. Now, here we are told that the exhortation put forward is that you're to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. A doer of the word, not just a hearer. This is really, really difficult. It is, in principle, it's basic. In principle, it makes perfect sense. A doer of the word, not just a hearer. Uh, I shared this before, and I share with you once again because I really like this example. Pastor Roger, Pastor Roger, great friend. I remember he got invited to a Bible college to speak, and what the what the session was he was asked to speak on was church growth, church growth. 
because you know he's very effective and and the church is growing and, and things and he goes I don't know what my lecture is going to be man and he goes well what do you mean like just share what you're doing he goes you know what you know what my secret is to church growth save souls that's it you want your church to grow preach the gospel lead people to Christ yeah, yeah there you go that's it and I thought that makes perfect sense you know why because he's a doer of the word not just a hearer Francis Chan actually shares in his testimony, he shares about his own personal challenge that as he was reading through the Gospels, he goes, what would happen? What would happen if you believed everything that it said in the Bible and then did it? What would happen? And so that's what he did. That's what he did. He said, okay, Lord, you say this, I'll believe that, and I'll go and do this. You've challenged me with this, okay, I'll do this. And God has blessed him as he, sought to, as he sought to be obedient to God's word. That's why, I mean, that's why it's great to have information. That's why it's great to have, and this is, this is I think, our weakness as people. Now, no, no, I'm sorry to incorporate you in this. This is my weakness, I think. Is that it's great to have information to make us sound smart. It's great to have information to be able to communicate and sound how spiritual or appear to be spiritual. But if it doesn't go beyond that, it's absolutely useless. It's absolutely worthless to, to sit there and hear all this information week in, week out, day in, day out. You spend time reading the Word, but if it doesn't do anything for you other than, I know this now, then it's useless. This is what being a doer of the Word is, is that as God has impacted your heart and you said, okay, Lord, and you stepped out on that. Okay, Lord, you say, Lord, you say that if I go and put myself in a situation where I can, you give me the words to speak, okay. Problem is, none of us, we are told this in the Scriptures, that the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. Jesus teaches that. How many of you know that for a fact? How many of you have put yourself in a situation where you've been out, of, where you've considered yourself out of your depth, and someone's challenged you with a question, and then God, by His Spirit, has given you the right words to say in response to that? How many of you have done that? And, and sadly, I mean, the statistic is in America, less than 2%, 2% of people of the church in America actively share their faith. 2%. And it's, it, I, I would say it's probably the same here or maybe even worse. But you don't know, will you? You, you never know. You never know the, the, the faithfulness of God's word if you're stuck in your room. You'll never know the faithfulness of God's word and faithfulness of God's promises if you never put yourself in a situation to claim those promises. You won't. How do you know God provides? If he says that oh, my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory, according to Christ Jesus, how many of you know that God really does supply all you need? How do you know? This is why it's so important to be doers of the word. And the example he gives of somebody, the example he gives of somebody being a doer of the word in verse 23, it says, 24, it says, it's like someone that looks in a mirror, walks away, and forgets what sort of person they were when they, when they walk away. How many of you looked in the mirror this morning? I did. I was shaving my head. I was shaving my head. The mirror, the mirror was, the, I, I think I told you, one time I, I shaved my head in a rush, and I left one line of hair. It looked like, it looked like I had a reverse part. You know how people part their hair? I had a reverse part, so I was all set, and there's one line just along here. So, yeah, that's what, that's what it looked like. Why? But you need a mirror. You need a mirror. You need a mirror to have a look at yourself and think, yeah, I look good. That's what you need, okay? Because no one else is going to say you look good. But 
So you need a mirror. This is what God's word is. Now, if I looked at the mirror this morning, I saw I have my reverse parts. I had my line of hair. I see that I haven't shaved properly. I walk away thinking, yeah, it's fine. And I forget what I look like. That's exactly the same sort of person that looks at the word of God, is challenged by God's word, and walks away doing nothing about it. It's exactly the same. So as ridiculous as I look with my one line of hair and with my, my, my face half-shaven, that's what we are spiritually. That's what we are. You don't want to be the reverse part person. You don't. You don't. It's embarrassing because I remember walking in public and people staring at me like, oh, I'm thinking, oh, well, they're looking at me. Then I saw in a reflection this one line that's like, oh, wow, now I know why they're looking. Okay, that is the reality. Now, but here's the thing. This is why the Word of God is so important. This is why the Word of God is such a blessing. Psalm 119, as you read through Psalm 119, is, it's a psalmist writing about the joy and the blessing of what the Word of God is and what the Word of God does. In Psalm 119, we read this. Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your Word? What's the Word of God do? It's about purity. Verse 10, it's about prevention. I have stored up. It's supposed um, supposed to be verse 11, not verse 10, sorry. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. You have what in the word? You have life. Verse 49, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. What does the word of God do? It gives you hope. Wisdom. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Verse 105, enlightenment. Your, um, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path, and it makes you secure. 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity have dominion over me. The effectiveness of God's Word is fully realized and experienced on a personal basis when the Word of God is acted on and lived out. Uh, David, David, David. Where's Pam? Hey, David. Sorry, David. David, where's Pam gone? Hey, Pam, sorry. Pam shared about David. Pam shared about David this morning. And I was talking to David this morning. But see, look at David. David, do you think David would have experienced the greatness of God's working in his life if he stood on the hilltop with the rest of the Israelite soldiers? Like he knew, he knew up here and he knew in here, but if he never acted on it, he never would have experienced the joy of God working through him. Daniel, do you think Daniel would have ever experienced the joy of God and and God's deliverance in his life from the lion's den if when he was told and and he he kept to the Lord and not to pray, and if he obeyed that, he would have missed out on seeing God's deliverance? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when it came down to bowing down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, do do you think that they would have ever experienced the joy of being delivered from a fiery furnace if they stood there and bowed down with everybody else? Do you think the likes of, say, Matthew as a tax collector, the likes of, say, Peter, the likes of the fishermen of John and and James and Andrew and all those disciples, that when Jesus called them and said, come follow me, do you think they would have been able to witness and be a part, like, of historical building faith here? Do you think they would have been a part of this if they sat there and Matthew said, nah, I'm going to stay at my tax booth? Or James and John, nah, I'm going to stay mending my net. 
Do you think Paul would have got to experience some of the greatest things, that, the Philippian jailer being set free by, a, by an earthquake and having chains unbound by an earthquake? That's unheard of. And to deliver a Philippian jailer who was about to commit suicide. Do you think any of these men would have experienced any of those things if they sat where they were and just read about it? If they sat where they were and just thought about it? No, they wouldn't. And I think for a lot of us, we miss out on that because we, we sit about it. We, we, we sit on it. We think about it. Or in Christian terms, we, oh, let me pray about it. Let me pray about it. And we miss out, don't we? But we are told clearly in the Scripture to be a doer of God's Word, not just a hearer only. You'll miss out. This is why the second observance, it's action over intent. There has to come a time in our lives where we get up and we do. That, that the reality of who Jesus is has impacted you so much that it's in your heart you cannot help but get up and go out and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with someone this week. Okay, okay, Lord, I, I, I'm going gonna to reach out and minister to a friend who I know is in need. Okay, Lord, uh, there's an elderly visit. All right, there's an elderly visit today. I'm going to go along and I'm going to talk to some old people, even though I'm scared out of my mind. There has to come a time when we get up out of our chairs and we do something. Because if you don't, then, as the Scriptures teach, it's worthless. It's worthless. And, And this is not how God... This is not how God has designed it for us. We don't want to be deceiving ourselves, thinking that we're something that we're not. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. That's, look, I hear this as I'm speaking, and I'm sure you hear this as I'm speaking, and we're moved, we're moved, or we might be convicted emotionally. What are we going to do about it? Where are we going to go with it? That's the challenge. That's the challenge. The reality of who God really is, is it evident in the choices that you make from here and onward? That's where the reality hits the road. And our third, so this is the third. So the first one, the first one is about self-control. The first observance is about self-control over emotional reaction. The second one is action over intent, doing instead of just hearing. The third one, which I think is really quite neat, it's, it's found in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Now, I have been guilty in the past of viewing religion as an inherently bad thing. Now, let me explain. That religion... And my definition of religion is that religion is about man's effort to attain the divine. Man's effort to earn the divine or to purchase the divine. That's, that's, how, that's how my view of what religion is, is where Christianity, it really is. It really is about relationship. It's about how God reached down and brought you up to the divine. It's about how God, by His grace, came down to earth, died for you and I, in order where we might be made whole and made acceptable in His sight. That's what Christianity is about. 
But I think God's definition of religion and my definition of religion are, are two slightly different things. Because when I look at the Old Testament, I see how God is a God of ceremony, how God is a God of, of ritual. God, God set in place various things for the purpose of building the relationship. Okay? The reason why, the reason why the, the way things were set up in the Old Testament didn't go along or didn't go according to, the, to how God intentionally designed had nothing to do with God, had everything to do with people. It was people that made it and changed it into a works-based thing. It was people that turned all the ritual and the ceremony into a bad thing. It was people that did that. The reason why I say ritual and ceremony is important to God, when you read, I think I put it there, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, he sets up all this ritual, he sets up all this ceremony, he sets up all this tabernacle, the temple, for him. For what purpose? For the relationship. It says this here, there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. When you look throughout the Old Testament, God has always been concerned about relationship. He's always desired relationship. The reason why it was so complicated, the reason why there was, there was so many details involved is because it reflected, as I shared before last year, it reflected the seriousness by which God dealt with sin. The reason why it was so difficult is because sin is a serious thing to God and is not something to be taken lightly. It also revealed something else. It revealed how God took you seriously. God took you so seriously that he set up all this stuff whereby we could have a relationship with him above the mercy seat where he could meet with us, where he could talk with us. He got that all sorted out because he took you seriously. He took you so seriously that he sent his son to die for you. That's how seriously he took you. And that's what all this is about. So this religion that he talks about, it's always been about relationship. Each of the festivals, each of the ceremonies, each of the sacrifices pointed to how God took sin seriously and he took, sin, he took you seriously because religion is important to God. Ceremony is important to God, provided that the ceremony or the religion never takes the place of the relationship we share with him. This is why when we do communion once a month, and I think, I, think so I used to celebrate it every week at the church I used to go to way back in New Zealand. And I must admit, it did become just going through the motions. You could sort of lose the meaning of it. See, provided the meaning doesn't get lost, the ceremony is a great thing. Communion is to what? It is to point us to Jesus, to refocus us to Jesus. So, this is why there is a, a condemnation of worthless religion, the condemnation of being hearers only, uh, the condemnation of going through the motions, the condemnation of how they cared for others practically and relationally. And you see this when he goes in verse 27, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans, and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, this is what I find interesting. Why did James use this specific description when it came to des describing this is what pure religion looks like? 
Well, he's writing, if you recall, he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So he's writing to Hebrew people. He's writing to the Jews here, Jewish Christians. And as he writes to them, he makes reference to the description that Isaiah gives in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Because the condemnation that the people of Israel experienced then in Isaiah was that they were, Isaiah, Isaiah, is that they were just going through the motions. They were just going through the motions. So we read this in verse 17 of chapter 1. Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, that's the orphans, plead the widow's cause. He sits there that this is what you need to be doing. This, he goes, this is what's acceptable to me. I think it was in Isaiah 48. Even when it talks about fasting and, and, and the way it fasts, the same thing, to make the references to the fatherless and to the widows. So he uses this particular description from Isaiah because the Hebrew guys would know this. Now we challenge them to think, are we in the same state as what Israel was back in the days of Isaiah? Are we guilty of the same thing of going through the motions? If pure religion and undefiled religion is to care for the orphans and to care for the widows and to keep oneself unspotted from the world, then are we lining up with God's condemnation of Israel back then? Because this is what happened when in verse 14, this is how God viewed their particular religious activity. He says, it's a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. It talks about the sacrifices, talks about the offerings, and God says, it's a burden. It's a burden. He actually says, I hate, I hate those sacrifices. I hate those. That's a harsh phrase. That's a harsh word, but God demonstrates this. It's like, well, and yet this is the challenge that James reminds the people of Israel about. You see, the genuineness of one's faith is expressed in doing, not just talking. It's expressed in being, not just intent. It is the outworking practically of the transformation inwardly. Hypocrisy was the condemnation that Jesus gave the Pharisees in Matthew 15, verses 17, sorry, verse 7 to 10. It says this, I'll read it to you. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from them. They talked a big game, but they didn't do it. Rather, the heart of God is expressed in the willingness to meet the needs of others because that is what his heart is to those in need. I don't know if I put it up there. Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 to 40, we read this. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. Clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. I was in the elderly home. I was on the street. I was your next-door neighbor. I was a person you passed. That's the same intent that Jesus is teaching here. Then the righteous will ask to answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you a sick person, or in prison, or go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. See, this third observance is that the observance of faith favors genuine relationship 
over religious activity. Now, think on that for a second. Genuine relationship over religious activity. Religious activity is easy. Religious activity looks good. Religious activity hides what a heart's attitude might be. That's what religious activity does. Genuine relationship, that involves time. That involves sacrifice. That involves a heart that is focused elsewhere instead of yourself. That's what that requires. And yet this is the third of the three observances we are called to have. So yes, we are to have self-control over emotional reaction. Yes, we are to have action over intent. And we are to have genuine relationship over religious activity. But the only way any of these things are able to be achieved, once again, comes down to where you and I are at and our relationship with Jesus. It comes down to whether our heart really does beat in time with his. It comes down to, am I really seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? It all depends on, on where are we looking? This has been a really big thing for me. Where are we looking and what do we see? See, if the observance of faith is to be reflected in godly integrity, godly integrity that's the self-control over emotional reaction, in bold proclamation, action over intent, and intentional interaction, that's genuine relationship, then it must begin with where one sits in their own relationship with Jesus. You see, these observances follow on from last week where we focused on how every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Well, every good gift includes the relationship with Jesus. That's the greatest gift of all, which means self-control is only attainable by being in a right relationship with God through Jesus. It means the willingness and desire to, to be active and actually do things instead of just talking about it. Once again, that comes about whether your heart has been captivated by the love that Jesus has for you and what he was willing to do for you. Uh, the, the fact that you want to desire genuine relationship over religious activity, well, here, here's what's the thing. If your relationship with Jesus is right, your religious activity won't seem like religious activity because it's based within genuine relationship. It, it just happens that way. So I think that's actually quite amazing. So it comes down to this, and, and it always comes down to this, just like it came down to it last week. It all came down to the Father of lights and your relationship with Him. Relationship with him. This here, this comes down to, once again, the Father of lights and your relationship with Him. That's what it comes down to. So my, my encouragement to you, my, my, my challenge to you, is that you cherish this relationship you have with him, that you get first things first, that you put the horse before the cart and make sure that you are right in your relationship with Jesus as you seek to allow this to take place within your life. Because that's the only way it'll actually be transformational and last. That's the only way it'll last. It was changed, brought about by Him and by His Spirit. Which means this, I know, I know that some of you, how many of you have been reading James? Five days, one chapter a day. How many of you have been reading James? All right, all right. The challenge, still, the challenge still stays out for this week. We can do, for those who haven't started, read one chapter a day, Monday to Friday. I'm giving you weekends off because it's Saturday and Sunday. I'm giving you weekends off. 
But Monday to Friday, read one chapter a day. One, two, three, four, five. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Easy. It takes you all of maybe three minutes to read through one chapter. If you want to spend time in there and break it down and study it, then do it. That's up to you. But the reason why I want you to, to I know this, and, and I've done this, if you read over the next seven weeks or six weeks now, one chapter a day for the next six weeks, you'll find that you'll remember. You'll remember where verses are. You'll remember where thoughts are. You'll remember where principles are and themes. You'll remember these things. And what's funny is this. If you look back at Psalm 119, one more. Oh, this is difficult. There we go. There we go. Next one. There we go. If you look at Psalm 119, once again, it's verse 11, not verse 10. That was a typo. My. Um, it says this. Once you remember all these passages of Scripture, and, and even if it's not remembered word for word, but you understand the idea of it, you understand the truth of it, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is what happens, that as you read, you'll start seeing things within the Scriptures, and whenever God will bring to mind, by His Spirit, will bring to mind something you've read in James, something that you've heard. So I'm not, I'm not doing this to be, to be like, oh, yeah, it's your homework. And it's not your homework, it's your assignment. But I'm not being like this to be a pain. I'm doing this because this is a benefit for us. This benefits us in our relationship with Jesus. This transforms us with our, in our relationship with Jesus. It transforms our hearts and our desires and our desire to live holy in our relationship with Jesus. This is what makes it so exciting. And so I would encourage you, I would encourage you when you think about your observance of faith, here's your first observance. Read the Scriptures every day. Read the Scriptures every day. If you don't know what to read, read the five chapters of James, one chapter a day for the next six weeks. Now, for those who have been reading, how many of you have shared what you've learned with someone? Two, three people, four, five. John shared with us on Wednesday. Five, six, yep. Do that. One of the best ways I found I remember stuff is by sharing it. Best way to remember the gospel? Share the gospel with someone. Best way to remember a Bible verse? Share it with somebody. I would encourage you to share it with someone. Allow God to work through the implanted word in your heart, a sanctifying, a loving, merciful spirit that might come forth from you. And I pray that we'll be able to take that seriously just as God took us seriously. Um, can I ask the music team to come up I'll, I'll, and be upstanding? Can we sing Great is Thy Faithfulness? Thank you very much. And then I'll close in prayer after that. We'll have the prayer team up after, after the service as well, after I close in prayer. I want the prayer team up. And we would love to pray for you.